Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore carbon offsets and how their promise as a way to mitigate carbon emissions and thus climate change has not yet panned out. A recent article in ProPublica finds that instead, those who broker in carbon offsets appear to be gaming the system. And the calculations of how much carbon is being sequestered in forests are often miscalculated or erroneous. My guests are Grayson Badgley, postdoctoral researcher at BlackRock Forest, a research forest just outside New York City, and Anna Trugman, assistant professor of geography at UC Santa Barbara. Their research was featured in the ProPublica article. I think people who listen to the news but who aren't experts hear this idea carbon offsets, carbon credits. Can we talk about what exactly that means? What is a carbon offset? What is a carbon credit? A carbon credit is when someone who is emitting carbon dioxide or polluting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, rather than sort of taking actions to control their, their pollution, sort of at like the individual smokestack, they instead go out and they pay somebody else to do something different uh, that prevents carbon from going into the atmosphere. So the polluter gets to keep polluting uh, and in exchange, they give some money to somebody else, say like a forest owner, and the forest owner um, might delay rotation, uh, you know, delay harvesting of, of trees. Um, that means that the carbon that was in the forest uh, that might've been harvested and some of that released in the atmosphere, it stays in the trees. And therefore uh, the emissions at the smokestack are offset by the carbon stored in the forest. And there's all sorts of schemes for this in the agricultural context, um, in um, methane from landfills. Uh, there's a lot of different sort of schemes of where one person pays somebody else to not pollute. When I first started hearing about this, and again, I, I'm no expert, really. This is an area where I don't have a lot of knowledge, but it always sounded off or sounded odd or wrong, or I don't want deforestation happening anyway. It always seemed like it didn't pencil out. And so I'm really thankful for the research you guys have done sort of trying to break this down a bit. So Anna, can you talk to me a little bit about why this might have been seen as a good scheme and what issues maybe people in your field noticed right away or, or, and wanted to explore? Forest conservation is really good from a number of different perspectives. There are a lot of ecosystem services besides carbon sequestration that forests can um, provide. And what's really cool is trees are this natural pipe to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So they photosynthesize and they incorporate through photosynthesis the carbon dioxide in their biomass. And so um, there's potential for a really clever scheme to help. And, and they actually are actively helping us mitigate current climate change. But you need to do this accounting. And so I think what, what Grayson's work has shown is that you need to do this accounting carefully and meticulously to show that they provide some sort of additionality in terms of um, carbon offset above what they would be in the case where there was no sort of improved forest management, um, because that's really critical because with this offset program, emitters are allowed to emit more because they're buying this offset somewhere else. And so if you don't provide that additionality, you're just emitting more carbon. And in the context of like why offsets have really been launched is, is we're um, increasingly recognizing that climate change is a problem and we're trying to mitigate our emissions through a number of different avenues. And so this cap and trade program is one potential way and forest carbon storage is one potential 
um, subset of ways that we can employ this cap and trade program. So there's actually a value to the idea or the concept of carbon offsets? There's certainly, in principle, you could see these forest carbon offsets working in in a very carefully designed system. I think what Grayson has done is really highlighted that the current system isn't carefully designed. Furthermore, we might not have the knowledge to carefully design this system at this point. And so I think that's where the crux of the matter is. Got it. So Grayson, can you talk a little bit about what you discovered specifically about the carbon offset program? So for, for context, uh, California has this cap and trade program and uh, you can do forest carbon offsets in it. And it turns out that forest carbon offsets are uh, the majority of the offsets in California's cap and trade system. You know, something like 80% of the offsets that have been issued to date um, are for forest carbon. What are some other offsets that could be part of the program? There's some other uh, sort of livestock um, management and some um, like ozone depleting substance uh, protocols. So there's some other uh, mechanisms that you can offset your carbon, but the lion's share of the program is, is really the forest. And so getting the forest right is really important from a policy standpoint because it does constitute such a large um, part of the program. And there's a specific type of forest offset that dominates the system. You, you could think of a lot of different ways that you could um, use forests to um, combat climate change. You could plant more trees, you know, go somewhere that, you know, used to be a forest, but got converted to the farmland or something like that. You might go out and, you know, take the farmland away and put, you know, put up more trees. And now those are going to slowly accumulate carbon over, over decades and centuries to come. Uh, but it turns out that the, the majority of the forest carbon offsets are this specific type of offset called an improved forest management project. And essentially what that means is that in exchange for a payment, uh, for the carbon payment, uh, the owner of the forest basically says that they're not, they're going to slow down the rate of harvesting their land. So maybe they were doing a timber harvest every 40 or 60 years. Instead, you know, they're going to wait a hundred more years to chop down those trees. It turns out that the way you get credit for your improved forest management is you ask, at the very outset of the, of the program, you ask, how does my forest that I currently have stack up against other forests in the region? And if your forest has a lot more carbon today than the regulator calculated regional average, you get a one-time upfront payment for that difference. And what we were able to show is that these comparisons, these regional average comparisons uh, had some really fundamental uh, statistical and ecological errors. Forests that are very dense and uh, carbon rich uh, are compared against forests that are, have a completely different species composition and have much, much less carbon. Essentially, you, you have like a really big tree and if you compare it against a really small tree, the really big tree is going to seem you know, way above average. And that false comparison leads to overcrediting under California's current rules. One really sort of good example of this is that under the protocol's rules uh, in the sort of 2011 and 2014 version of the protocol, there's actually a region of the United States in central New Mexico where the regional average was zero where the rules said that forests in that region contained no carbon, which meant that if you had any number, if you had any trees, if you had any forests, you were instantly eligible for an upfront payment. And in fact, there was a large project that received in excess of 4 million credits in that first crediting period 
because of this comparison against a zero. How did that forest, the baseline forest, get a zero? I don't have a good answer for you yet. What seems to be very clearly an error, it's certainly um, not biologically correct that a tree could have zero carbon in it. There's some evidence that the California Air Resources Board knew that this was a problem before the project that we're discussing was actually developed. And the error was later fixed. If you were to try and sort of develop that same project today, you wouldn't be able to get quite as many credits in that initial stage. Uh, but yeah, how a zero um, got in there? I'd like to have a better answer to to how that happened. Yeah, or how zero got in there unscrutinized, because certainly I can understand an error, but then to run with it, that seems that seems strange. And I imagine that even though the error was fixed, the payments weren't adjusted retroactively. Not yet. Yeah, not yet, not yet. California has forests, but there's also fires, and then there's fire management uh, or cultural fire management. I'm just thinking of all these variables and if I'm doing fire management and yet there's this credit possibility, and the ProPublica article says the program in California produced six dozen projects that had generated more than 130 million credits worth $1.8 billion at recent prices. So it's not insignificant. Where does that money come from? Uh, does that money come from companies or does it come from the states? It comes from companies that are regulated under the cap and trade rules. So, you know, if you're regulated under the cap and trade rules, uh, for every ton of CO2 that you put into the atmosphere, uh, you need to turn in either an allowance, an allowance that you've bought at auction or that's been given to you, or you need to turn in an offset. You need to have one of these instruments that you, um, at the end of um, these reporting periods, you have to turn it into the state to say, um, I've paid for all of my carbon pollution. Okay, so now we're talking about California. H how do you balance, if I've got forests and there's this massive fire danger, which becomes more real every year, um, and, and we need fire management to deal with that, how do we balance this program, which has a financial incentive with the health of the land and the health of the forest and the health of our air, all, you know, there's so many things. And I so there is a buffer pool that speaks to these like risks of a particular project burning down or um, suffering insect or drought driven mortality. Um, what is actually pretty um, disturbing and, and upsetting is, is Grayson found that the overcrediting itself just exceeds this buffer pool. The actual um, percent of credits that are set off as part of this risk buffer pool. It's the number of credits is likely not to account for the actual forest risk from these different disturbance processes and um, was not necessarily done in a particularly rigorous way. Even through overcrediting, we've already exceeded this buffer pool. There's this buffer pool and the buffer is basically meant to be like, yeah, we know there are going to be fires. We know there are going to be natural disasters. So we expect that maybe you're going to lose some of the carbon that you have contained in these trees. And we've accounted for that. But what I'm hearing you say, Anna, is that first of all, the buffer isn't really accounting for reality as we li or we're living it at this moment. And that secondly, the balance of carbon that's being emitted is not being taken care of by the carbon offset. So let's talk about that buffer pool first. Grayson, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little more about what you've discovered. I mean, I think this goes back to Anna's previous point about how offsets in theory, you know, if we're sitting in sort of econ 101, you know, we can sort of write down some rules and be like, okay, in an idealized world, this ought to work. Uh, but then 
how do you actually calculate what the risk of a fire to an individual parcel of land in Northern California is going to be over the course of the next 100 years? Um, we know it's going to be more severe than today, but that's a really interesting scientific question, and there's a lot of people working on it, but it's a tough question. Our ability to sort of pin that down with a sort of precision that's required to sort of have the careful accounting that's demanded by carbon offsets, I don't think that we have that level of precision yet to kind of highlight uh, how not sophisticated California's current approach is, is that the risk for a fire to any individual offset project is the same in Northern California as in Michigan. Uh, and so, you know, you have these forests that are fundamentally different, uh, precipitation, you know, rain, annual rainfall, totally different in these regions. And yet in the eyes of the protocol, the risk of a fire happening in Northern California, the buffer pool contribution is identical throughout the entire United States. And in fact, if you take efforts to sort of do thinning and fuel treatments and things like that, which is stuff that only happens in fire prone areas, the amount that you actually have to contribute to the buffer pool is even less. And so there's going to be a need to more seriously grapple with the, the warmer and drier future. Um, and the fact that there are a lot of forest carbon offset projects in the American West, in forests that are designed, ecologically designed to burn. You've got the science or you've got the rigor that's needed to maybe do this right. Um, and, and there are a lot of questions that just can't be answered, Grayson, as you indicated. It's difficult to know what specific fire risk is going to be over the course of time. But there are also other considerations that any sort of policy, you know, policymakers, lobbyists, people with different priorities. I imagine that this world where carbon offsets are being developed, it isn't just the scientists putting forth the rigor that's needed to do it well. It's every player, which is expected. But I'm imagining that that's how we've gotten to this point where you have a forest at zero carbon and where you have Michigan and California forests being rated the same. There's no doubt that there are parties that have a financial interest in maximizing the number of cheap carbon offsets that are available. I mean, the offset program was designed to be a cost mitigation strategy under cap and trade. To give you a, another example of sort of how the sort of political economy of financially interested parties interacting with offset protocols uh, exists is that California Air Resources Board convened a, an offset task force to sort of um, look into the future uh, about changes that could be made and uh, new protocols that could be brought on to sort of increase and um, expand the, the number of offsets that are generated under California's rules. And in, and in that final report, of which there are a number of individuals who are both industrial timber owners and um, offset developers, their recommendation was to reduce the size of the buffer pool, um, was to make it so that these the amount that gets set aside for things like financial risks, fire, insects, they wanted to revisit all those numbers and, and revise those numbers downwards. The question of offsets is not just a scientific one. It is very, uh, very wrapped up in politics and, and, and money. And so you would like to see those numbers revised upward, yes, because... Well, depending on the area, I'm assuming. I'd like to see them informed by science, uh, and I'd like to see them be stress tested. I'd like the regulator to be asking really critical questions. Is this the right number? Do we have the right number? What happens if we don't have the right number? I hope those conversations are ones that we have that we have in the future. The other thing is just like the translation of things into policy actionable formats can make things difficult. As Grayson mentioned, 
these credits are awarded up front in a lot of cases and they rely on permanence uh, at like roughly 100 year time scales. Those aren't really questions that we can answer right now from a scientific uncertainty perspective. And I, I would argue from like a social perspective in some cases, you know, just um, changeovers in our government every four years, it makes it really difficult to guarantee things on those sorts of timescales where the additionality is needed in the current policy format. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're discussing carbon offsets and climate change with researchers Grayson Badgley and Anna Trugman. So we've talked about kind of the system, how it works, how it's not working. Why should we care? I'm hearing carbon offsets. I'm hearing about climate change. And I think for a lot of people, it, it feels very esoteric. It feels far away, even though we can feel things changing. But why should we care about the fact that this program isn't being informed by rigorous science guidance? We should care because we're paying to mitigate climate change and there's no climate benefit. And so it's not going to do anything. And, you know, this is a really urgent problem that we needed to address 30 years ago. And so if the solutions that we're um, putting forward right now are not effective, that's going to result in even more drastic consequences down the line. Someone's polluting carbon dioxide today. There's carbon dioxide being added to the atmosphere uh, on the basis that it's being taken care of. It's being mopped up somewhere else by one of these trees. And when that doesn't happen, what we're left with is we're left with the atmosphere kind of holding the bag. Uh, we're left with society having to deal with the myriad of consequences of climate change. And uh, yeah, we're just really... Uh, anything less than perfect in the offset world, you know, just digging the hole deeper. Yeah, because we're actually adding carbon to the atmosphere, which was the whole point, because the whole point isn't to find a way to continue emitting carbon. The point is to address this climate challenge. And it feels as if maybe this program has been co-opted a bit. The program certainly, from our analysis, certainly hasn't um, led to as much savings as, as it claims to. In fact, in the in the article that ProPublica put out, Danny Cullenward, he's the policy director at the Carbon Plan, he said uh, that California's forest offset program actually increases greenhouse gas emissions and it creates the false appearance of progress when, in fact, it makes the climate problem worse. Would you agree with that assessment? I would. Yeah, I would as well. It just gets down to this additionality concept. So someone is paying people for improved forest management and emitting somewhere else. And if you don't get that improved forest management, you get extra emissions, which exacerbates the climate problem. So we know that this isn't working and it's it's a kind of the cornerstone of the state's climate management approach. Um, and we know that it's making things worse. So where do we go from here with this program? What do you want to see happen? There's a lot of good that can be done from managing forest carbon. And it's not immediately clear to me that we need to have it wrapped up in this offset framework. You know, what's stopping us from treating forest conservation and forest management in more of a public expenditure kind of way? You know, we pay for public transportation because it's good for society. It helps people get around. It reduces emissions. Why don't we just try and find no regrets uh, forest management where we say, you know, if this works out, the atmosphere is going to be better off, but at least we're not banking on it. There's questions about where that money comes from. Uh, and it probably means that the 
polluters who are already paying to uh, emit carbon dioxide, maybe if we just took some of that revenue and rather than funneling it through an offset program, what if we just collected the money directly from the polluter and then earmarked some, some fraction of it to, to go out and do these kinds of forest management um, strategies that in principle can be successful. <laughs> Do you think that the carbon offset program has protected California's forests in any way, like from deforestation? I think it's really hard to assess that. Um, <laughs> when all of a sudden you protect one redwood forest, and but you there's a market spike in or demand for redwood, does that mean you just go cut the trees down somewhere else? There's a lot of other little tricky bits uh, about doing offsets, right? We haven't gotten into. Um, and so, yeah. I think fully answering that question is, um, I'm not sure anyone has the answer to that question yet. And I think it's really important actually that these two things are separate. If we're intending a forest to provide carbon offsets, that it's great to conserve forests. And I think we should allocate money, as Grayson said, to try and, and help conserve our forests. But you need this additionality component for the offset market to be successful. And so confusing the two doesn't really do any service towards mitigating climate change. So how would you propose separating them? Because you're right, it feels as if we conflated two things that actually need their own approach to management and mitigation. So can you talk a little bit about how you might approach this issue to ensure that they both are dealt with as, as you think they need to be? I don't think that the forest carbon offsets are game ready right now. But I think it is very worthwhile to have um, some sort of forest conservation arm. And so maybe we have funding that is separate for the two different purposes. What would Game Ready look like? I mean, there, there's a few different things. We need to determine this additionality component in a rigorous way. And we also need to understand this and be able to forecast the changing risk to these different permanent factors. And, and that's a really tricky thing that... Um, I think that cutting edge science is not ready to do yet. We can start asking that question, but I don't think we're game ready. That's fair. I think that's fair. And that's what the purpose of science is, right? Is to find an issue, look into the issue, address the issue, and do our best to to figure out how to manage it and then and then evolve our processes as we learn more. You talk about, you know, science needs to follow these lines of inquiry a little bit further before we can really do this. Do you feel like you're being given the room? And space to do that? I think a lot of folks are actively working on this problem to understand how climate change is influencing disturbance. Um, so it is a very active area of research that um, folks are interested in. I think one of the things that remains to be seen is how is the California Air Resources Board going to engage with our results? The way the rules are written now um, allows you to compare your big majestic redwoods and dug fir against scrawny ponderosa pine. And you know, that is a that's a, a statistical fallacy. You know, that's where you take, you know, you've got th things with totally different averages uh, and you compare them against each other and you've got a problem. And uh, we haven't really heard anyone uh, defend that approach. I think it's still early. It's, I'm not saying that these conversations won't happen, but we also haven't heard anyone sort of talk about what's going to be done to actually fix them from a, a nuts and bolts and subcodes and, um, you know, subclauses of, of legislation and, and regulation. And it's not clear to me exactly what happens from there and how, how that process is going to play out. And if errors were made, how do you rectify them? And I don't know when or how those conversations happen. 
I welcome them. <laughs> and um, uh, if I can be helpful in them, <laughs> and if scientists can be helpful in them, uh, that would be fantastic. But I'm still not sure exactly what that's going to look like. That's fair. You mentioned earlier, there are all kinds of gaming the current system to to balance carbon offsets, like size of trees. I think location was mentioned in the article. Um, preserving this forest that's got the credits applied versus not preserving this forest over here. So you get the net nothing. There's the species thing of where, you know, lots of different species that have potentially drastically different carbon contents all get averaged together. Uh, so if you have a forest that has the carbon dense species, you look like you've done different management that's promoted carbon, but really all you have is just different trees uh, that naturally occur on your land. There's the geography, uh, the geography thing. Uh, so kind of how this works is Imagine at the start of the pandemic, you know, when, when New York City was just going through that absolutely devastating surge of, of cases. You know, if you looked at cases in New York City, it was very clear that you had a problem. But imagine if you averaged all of New York State, you would have been like, well, there's actually not that many cases of COVID in New York State. So clearly there's no problem. It's these sorts of spatial averaging problems. It's the same phenomena that sort of applied in the, in the carbon context. Right. So it's basically mask, masking the problem a little bit. Yeah. It's in, in geography, it's called the modifiable aerial unit problem of where the size of the circle that you draw to do your analysis changes the answer. Another thing that comes up is that, you know, people who probably weren't going to chop down their trees say, if you don't pay for the carbon offset, uh, they're uh, just about to partake, you know, really heavy uh, management action. So uh, ProPublica covered one project by the Massachusetts Audubon Society uh, of where in their project documentation, they talk about really substantial harvesting of these forests that are otherwise preserved for birds. <laughs> I think one important thing is when thinking about this context of averaging carbon dense versus lower carbon forests, from like a naive perspective, it's great to preserve these carbon dense forests, but, but it's really this additionality component. So folks are getting credit for making those forests car extra carbon dense relative to the regional average, but they're not providing any additionality. And so if you, you were to chop down that carbon dense forest, that would emit a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. But, but the point of this cap and trade program and these credits is that you're actually improving the carbon in that current forest. And because you're averaging these two desperate forest types, um, you get a lot of extra credit for improvement where it's not there. And so it doesn't provide any of this additionality and doesn't offset emissions. So you want it to be actually taking in more carbon or offsetting, of course, and with all of these different ways of calculating, it's not really doing that. You mentioned earlier, we should have been dealing with this 30 years ago. Are we too late? Is the fact that we've been sort of like at the fringes of the issue, maybe not getting at the heart of it, have we put ourselves in a position where we're too late? Not that we can't do things, but where we've really sort of reached the point where we're not going to be able to fully tackle this? I mean, we're not too late to do something, but absolutely, if we had addressed this problem 30 years ago, it would be easier to address and there would be many fewer, um, you know, people suffering the externalities from this. So if we can still do something, but it, it's not going to be as good as if we did something 30 years ago. And if we do something next year or in five years, it won't be as good as if we did something now. So it's water under the bridge, whether we could 
get back to what would have happened 30 years ago. But we do still have time to do something now. Trees are a really fantastic tool in combating climate change. And they also have lots of other wonderful properties of supporting wildlife, biodiversity, uh, cultural significance. I think that we just need to be really, really extra careful uh, that we don't oversell how much work trees can do for us. They're not going to get us all the way there. We need to be a little bit more um, thoughtful in in how we're currently um, trying to deploy them to deal with climate change. Forest conservation is absolutely important, but um, the problem that we're facing is enormous and we need to have absolute confidence and we need to be throwing everything we have at um, trying to mitigate climate change. And just because of the uncertainty associated with these forest carbon offsets, we shouldn't be emphasizing them as our main thrust on how to mitigate climate change impacts. Thank you to my guests, Grayson Badgley, postdoctoral researcher at Black Rock Forest, a research forest just outside New York City, and Anna Trugman, assistant professor of geography at UC Santa Barbara. Their research was featured in a recent ProPublica article revealing issues with California's carbon offset program. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.